This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. When Steve Powell met with the FBI in Tacoma in late February of 2010, he told the special agents his grandsons, Charlie and Braden, didn't seem to miss their mother all that much. Have you uh, dared to ask the kids any questions or had they made any comments to They've you? They've never made any comments, no. The kids are very happy. Yeah. The only comments, uh, in fact, you know, do they really miss their mother? I don't even know. I mean, I think they do occasionally. Yeah. And they and they, maybe that maybe before they came to my house, maybe there were some questions or whatever. But the kids really have no. They've never made any comments. There's not anything, in, nothing in their their the way they act that suggests no. Nothing like that. There's yeah. no indication. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing morbid about the way they're thinking or about the way they're acting, reacting, talking. Steve's claim that the boys didn't talk about their mom seemed dubious at the time. We have done everything possible to shield those grandsons from the media and from this story. I don't turn on the TV. Which is commendable, by the way. And and I'm in a gated community, so the media can't park out in front of my house and, you know, shine halogen lights on my house all night. Yeah, there's kids should be totally free. And and yet, yet the people, the Cox family and their friends have just put signs up and down on every light post going in and out of our property with Susan's picture on them. And, and I, when I walked Charlie to the park the other day, like the way missing back, thing, like yeah, the missing, missing thing, he says, why is mommy's picture on the signposts, on those signs? I mean, I'm trying to shield these kids from them. These people are so desperate and they are so, they, they'll stop at nothing to get those kids away from my home. On April 17th of 2010, Steve typed this into his digital journal. This afternoon, Charlie commented that Mommy is lost in the desert. Josh and Michael were also present, so we all heard it. I asked him where he'd heard that. He said he had made it up in his own mind. Michael said we'd been talking too much about that desert search that was planned for April 10th. Supposedly, a couple thousand people were going to be searching in the area Josh and the boys camped on the night of December 6th. Susan went missing the next day. We discussed that plan and made derisive comments about it. Charlie doesn't miss much. This is Cold, Episode 10, Charlie. I'm Dave Cauley. Back after this. There are so many aspects to the Susan Powell investigation, it's been hard to get them all into cold. If you want even more exclusive details regarding Susan's story, head over to Wondery.com plus and sign up now for access to bonus content you won't find anywhere else. That's Wondery.com plus. Again, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear three bonus episodes you won't get anywhere else. Do you ever feel like you just need some support to get really healthy? Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. And I'm Melanie Douglas. I'm on a journey to find lasting health in my everyday life. And I'm here to help. We'll find fun, doable ways to improve your health through small and simple changes. It's the Really Healthy Podcast. Subscribe for free on iTunes or the KSL News Radio app. Way back in the summer of 2006, Josh registered a domain name for a website, susanpowell.org. The following summer, he registered three more, one each for his name, his son Charlie's name, and the baby, Braden's name. These were just the latest in a growing list of web addresses he controlled, going back to his college days. He'd built a site at susanandjosh.net for their wedding in 2001. A few years later, as he tried to build a career selling real estate, he made joshpowellrealtor.com. Josh's websites were not fancy. He liked web design, though, and worked constantly to improve his skills. For a couple of years, he used the domain charliepowell.org as a sort of sandbox where he could experiment. He built a password-protected portion of the site and posted photos of Susan and the boys there. 
Throughout 2009, Susan provided family and close friends with usernames and passwords, which were created by Josh, so they could see the photos as well. Susan preferred to just put those photos on MySpace or Facebook, but Josh wasn't all that interested in social media. He refused to let Susan use his computer for anything but the most basic tasks, like scanning his papers. In 2009, she finally spent $100 to buy her own computer. At the time, Josh groused about the expense and criticized her for buying a system he considered out of date. Shortly after Susan disappeared, someone provided Detective Ellis Maxwell with a username and password for the charliepowell.org website. He logged in and browsed through the photos of the Powell family's trips to Topaz Mountain and Dinosaur National Monument. A few weeks later, in early January, he tried to log in again. The credentials did not work. Josh had cut off access. A short time later, a page popped up on another of Josh's domains, SusanPowell.org. It claimed to be the official site for information about this beautiful woman, her family, and other things she loves. Text on the main page told visitors it was the only source of new photos and videos of Susan. While Josh wasn't personally interested in Facebook, he did pay attention to it. In the days following Susan's disappearance, her neighbor and friend Kiersey Hellwell had created a Facebook page to help spread information. And so at first we named it in the name of our church congregation. We called it the 136th Ward Group. And then I immediately changed it like the next day because I realized that it, it shouldn't be sounding like it's a church-sponsored thing. And so we named it Friends and Family of Susan Powell. And then the group became huge, like thousands of people joining like immediately. And it was just crazy how fast it went. And I had just made it to keep the neighborhood in contact with each other. So I could post the information in one place instead of having to answer 30 or 40 messages every day and 50 phone calls. And Public interest in Susan's case fanned that growth. The page soon had tens of thousands of followers, many of whom had no qualms sharing their negative opinions of Josh. He used SusanPowell.org to respond. As 2010 progressed, new pages appeared on the site. Some were relatively benign, marking Mother's Day or the six-month anniversary of Susan's disappearance. Others were addressed to Susan herself, as if she were hiding out someplace and reading them from afar. Yet others focused on Josh's activities with Charlie and Braden like a visit to Mount St. Helens on the 30th anniversary of its eruption. By putting up this website, all it is is a diversion. West Valley City Police Detective Ellis Maxwell didn't put any stock in the notion that Josh was actually trying to send messages of love and support to a distant Susan. It's their way of basically trying to convince society that they care and that they're trying to help. That's all it is. They don't care. Josh's dad, Steve Powell, in a digital journal entry dated May 15, 2010, wrote about the response to the website's Mother's Day entry. One blogger hit it on the nail by saying that we were probably sitting back and laughing our asses off. That's totally true. As I've said before, this website is about one thing, mind the Mormons who have shown a total lack of common sense and decency in this tragedy. Another page titled Mormons Mobilize appeared in June of 2010. It explained how Josh believed Susan's father, Chuck Cox, had used the religion to attack him. He pointed out that the administrators of Kiersey's Friends and Family Facebook page were Latter-day Saints. He surmised that they were out to get him because his father, Steve, was a self-described ex-Mormon. But the true instigator of all of this, according to the author of the page, was Josh's sister, Jennifer Graves. For at least 20 years, Jennifer has hated her father, Steve Powell, for openly expressing his views as an ex-Mormon. All four of Jennifer's siblings have always felt that Jennifer strongly resented them as well. Jennifer's long-held grudge has created a divide between Mormons and non-Mormons in the Powell family. The site also made clear Josh was leaving the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Josh still knows and loves many Mormons, and he is convinced that most Mormons are good people. However, Josh will not attend the Mormon church again because of the various pressures placed on Susan, and now on him as well as his extended family. Josh had met and befriended a local pastor named Tim Atkins and was attending his church instead. 
On another part of the site, the Powells recounted Jennifer's visit to Steve's home in January of 2010, when she'd confronted Josh while wearing a wire. Can you look me in the eye and tell me you really did not have anything to do with it? I did not have anything to do with it. The webpage accused Jennifer of being a convincing storyteller who went on an hysterical rant. Josh tried his best to answer Jennifer Graves' slightly more grounded questions, though they were rare. Jennifer Graves' insinuations became more exaggerated and hysterical with each time she asked, until Josh finally stopped responding to her altogether. Each new post on the SusanPowell.org site prompted a flood of critical reaction among the members of the Friends and Family Facebook page. Kiersey, the creator and chief moderator, tried to keep the peace in spite of her own outrage. Debbie and I would just call each other up and just like scream over the phone because we were so furious and so outraged that these slime bags could just be out in public doing this to her when they were the ones that made her disappear and probably had killed her. Debbie, Susan's daycare provider, also found herself a target. I even got a paragraph on that that website because I was a man-hater. Oh yeah, they called her a man-hater. Yeah, even though I'd been married to the same man over 25 years, I was a man-hater. By November of 2010, the pretense of the site being a place to share happy moments with Susan in absentia had completely evaporated. The writers lashed out at Susan's parents, again making unfounded accusations that they had inflicted emotional abuse upon Susan as a child. For Susan's dad, Chuck Cox, the website was worthy only of a huge eye roll. When you start read, reading the things, it's like, this is why Josh is such a great guy. I thought this was a Susan Powell website. You know, well, Josh is a great father because, well, this is nothing but propaganda for him. There's nobody could read that website and not realize what it was. It had any idea about the situation, you know. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's not worth my time or anybody else's time. Just, you know, it's just garbage out there. The SusanPowell.org website claimed Susan had never considered divorcing Josh, which her own writings clearly contradicted. Susan's friends, like Amber Hardman, couldn't believe what Josh and his dad were saying. They'd make these wild stories that nobody would believe. But then you look at everything that happened, and it is a wild story. It's hard to believe any of it is real, almost, you know. I remember living through it and just thinking, what's going to happen next? Like, this is like a horror movie. Like, everything that keeps happening is so unbelievable. In December, another page appeared. It discussed Susan's childhood friendship with a woman named Brittany Cornett, who had written in Susan's journal when they were both teenagers. The episode in question had involved a tiff between Susan and her mom over some household chores. Brittany wrote a private note of support and advice to her friend. Josh published those pages, from one teenage girl to another, for all the world to see. The six-page letter Brittany wrote directly into Susan's journal describes a real-time account of the emotional abuse Susan suffered in her childhood home. The website made it clear. Josh and his family were weaponizing Susan's childhood journals. Charlie Powell sat at the edge of the sandbox, away from the other kids. He wasn't pouting. He seemed fine playing alone. He just stacked rocks and twigs while babbling to himself. Two adult counselors from the Melcorum family YMCA were also at the edge of the sandbox on that day in late August of 2010, watching over the kids. They'd had them in their summer program for several weeks and were familiar with each child's unique personality. Charlie, they knew, was a whiz at science. He loved to talk about stuff way above his age range, like rockets, evolution, and how broken bones heal. Sometimes his science talk caught the staff at the Y off guard, like the time he said Bill Nye the science guy was always right and God wasn't real. One YMCA staffer liked to welcome the kids by saying it was a great day to be on God's green earth. Charlie would reply that God offended him. As he muttered to himself on that August day, he said something about how to kill a bear. It caught the ear of one of the counselors who asked Charlie to repeat what he had just said. Charlie said the best way to kill a bear was to dig a big hole, put the bear into it, and then throw rocks at it. 
Once the bear was dead, cover the hole with a tree and plant raspberry bushes. He stressed that last detail. It had to be a raspberry bush. That way, he said, the berries would be the sweetest. One of the counselors asked Charlie where he had heard such a thing. Charlie hesitated, then said, Um, on TV. Another time, Charlie took off chasing a crow during a snack break. He seemed intent on catching and killing it. The staff scrambled to stop him. They asked why he wanted to harm the bird. Charlie told them it was bad and needed to die. He said he needed to bury it, covering the crow with rocks and sticks and flowers, because then it would be perfect and no one would touch it. Now, Charlie was just one of many kids taking part in day camp at the Y that summer. He started in July and mostly kept to himself for the first few weeks. Toward the middle part of August, though, he started to come out of his shell and develop a rapport with the counselors. He sometimes did troubling things. He tended to pick on one of his fellow campers, a little girl, by putting sand down her pants and kicking her in the crotch. During a campfire activity one day, he explained Jesus was part of the Mormons, and Mormons were bad and should be killed. Most of the staff had no idea about Charlie's background, at least not at first. When he started misbehaving, word got around about who his dad was. Some of the counselors started reading up on the Susan Powell case online. Supervisors at the YMCA could see trouble brewing. They advised their staff to stay civil and document their interactions with Josh. Braden, then three, acted out in a different way. He cried often and wanted to be held constantly. He seemed to cling to the female counselors. They described him as high anxiety and extra needy. That time frame that, you know, those boys were away from their surroundings that they were comfortable with, right? And going to church with mom and, and daycare and stuff like that and being with mom and the majority of the time rather than dad, they were allowed to be kids. Once Susan went missing and Josh had those kids and more so when he took them from Utah to Washington, you know, those kids' exposure to childhood surroundings and environment kind of came to an end, with the exception of them going to YMCA and stuff like that. Josh said he didn't want his boys getting too attached to the YMCA staff. He acknowledged they hadn't seen their mother since December, but never actually mentioned Susan by name. From his very first phone call to the YMCA at the start of July, Josh struck the managers as odd. He bombarded them with calls and emails and became irritated when their responses weren't instantaneous. In person-to-person interactions, he stood or sat very close, keeping his voice hushed as if he feared being overheard. Yet, he would talk at length about his personal problems, not with his missing wife, but with being unemployed and painted as a bad guy in the media. Josh inquired if he might be able to get a job at the YMCA in order to help offset the cost of the day camp. Managers told him he was welcome to apply just like anybody else. Instead, Josh asked about volunteering. Staff said he would have to apply through their parent organization in Tacoma. Josh never did that. Perhaps he suggested he could just use his computer skills to beef up their registration program or internal software. He was good with computers, he said, and could hack into anything if given enough time. The whole point of this was Josh didn't want to pay. He said he was on unemployment and couldn't afford the programs. No problem, they said, helping him qualify for a 50% cut in the dues. But that wasn't enough for Josh. In one awkward conversation with the supervisor, he broke down and said his life was very hard. He said... Mormons were out to get him. They were using the internet to smear his good name. He wondered if the staff might be willing to blog on his behalf to talk about what a good father he was. The YMCA staff did not blog about Josh, but they did tell West Valley City Police every strange thing he had said or done in their presence.
Josh Powell loved lapidary. That's a fancy way of saying he liked making things with gemstones or minerals. That's evident from his interest in rock hounding and finding geodes in Utah. He wanted to share the hobby with his sons. In September of 2010, he started haunting the meetings of a gem and mineral club in Puyallup. Originally, he was like this nice guy, and I go, what do you do? Oh, I sell real estate and this and that, and he just seemed like a nice young man. That's Nancy. She was vice president of the club at the time. She's never publicly shared the story of her interactions with Josh, Charlie, and Braden. She asked that I not use her last name for this podcast out of concern for her privacy. I had no idea who he was. I didn't even know who he was. And I would look at the little boys and I would think, where's your mommy? In my head, where's your mommy? And, and then I'd just put it like, well, maybe he, they're separated and he's got custody every other week and this is where they go because it's something to do rather than just stay home on a Friday. In those early days, Josh often stayed after the meetings ended to talk to Nancy. He seemed eager to impress her. And it wasn't until there was a class there and somebody said to me, what, you know who they are, right? And I go, who, who is? And they go, Josh. And I go, I know that's Josh, yeah. And he goes, that's Josh Powell. His wife's missing? And I'm like, no. No. And I was shocked. And then I went home and I watched the TV. Or, you know, I pulled it up on the Internet and there his face is. And I literally cried because that's where our, where's your mommy? That was answered. Josh kept attending the meetings week after week. He rarely spoke with the other members, even during social events like field trips. I had heard that he was his intentions were to learn how to make jewelry with these stones and sell it so he could make some money. That's what I heard was what his intentions were for being in the club was to make money off of making some jewelry. The club held a kids' corner once a month. That wasn't enough for Josh. He brought his boys to every meeting even when they were just dry lectures or discussions of club business. They were just, it was like they were, like they had ants in their pants. They wanted to get up and go. They didn't like it there until they got to move. And they'd run upstairs. They'd go into areas they shouldn't go. They they were so rambunctious, but I don't, I don't know if that was just to be free. Josh let the boys run wild. They climbed on tables. They dashed upstairs. To Nancy, it seemed the boys were releasing pent-up energy. And they sometimes got into mischief. They weren't mean, but Braden bit one of the women on the bottom. I don't know why, but it was during one of the more maybe he wanted her to get out of the way I don't know was one of the busier meetings that we had and he came up behind her and bit her right on the bottom and um surprise to her Josh also let the boys use dangerous equipment like rock tumblers unsupervised other club members pointed out the obvious risk Nancy responded by making a new rule saying kids had to have adult supervision to use the machines When informed, Josh came unglued. Just angry and saying, that's not fair. And I mean, he he would, if it wasn't going his way, he would lash out. That temper did not endear him to anyone. But Nancy and the other club members fell in love with the boys in spite of their antics. Brayden didn't talk much, but Charlie liked to share, especially when his dad was out of earshot. He was like talking... I don't know, rubbing his fingers together and talking to me in this quiet, hushed tone. And I couldn't figure out why. And so I was like getting close to him, trying to hear what he was saying. And he was talking about architecture and buildings. And I was so impressed with him. I was, I mean, this little boy and he, what he was talking about wasn't the typical thing that a little boy talked about. Those opportunities were pretty rare. Nancy said Josh never paid the boys much mind until he lost sight of them. One time, Nancy stepped out of the grange where the club met to get something from her car. 
Charlie and Braden chased her outside. Josh busted through the door and he's going, what are you guys doing out here? I mean, just freaked at them, just over and above, because I was right there. But he, he lost it because they were out of his sight. On another occasion, Charlie bumped into a club member. It led to a stone that Josh had been polishing falling onto the floor. Josh picked up the stone, spotted a small chip, and exploded at Charlie. Screamed at him, just yelled at him like, you broke this, you've ruined it. And the club member was like, no, 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 you can just put it back on the sander and polish it up again and it's okay, it's all right. So club members were calming Josh down because he got so angry because this rock hit the floor. Charlie's only real escape came at school. He started kindergarten at Carson Elementary when the YMCA summer programs ended. On September 19th of 2010, Josh delivered a letter to the principal of the school. Here's what it said. Charlie is an at-risk child due to a vigilante mob being led and encouraged by people who claim to be friends and family. In order to protect Charlie's physical safety and emotional well-being, He must be kept away from anyone claiming to be a friend or family member unless explicitly authorized by me to have contact. The only people Josh authorized to pick up Charlie were himself, his dad Steve, his sister Alina, and his brother Michael. The letter included a no-contact list for Charlie, which singled out not only his maternal grandparents Chuck and Judy Cox, but also his mom, Susan. It was really creepy to me that the first, one of the first things he said to me is, their mom is not allowed to see them. Because once I found out who he was, I thought, if you killed her, why would you even be saying that? Why would that be an issue for you? That's Tammy Foreman. She was Charlie's kindergarten teacher. She did not like Josh. I felt scared when I was around him. I thought he was really creepy. Josh fretted about police and the media getting access to Charlie through the school. It led to him making some unusual demands. If possible, please forbid all outsiders from entering Charlie's classroom unless they are related to another student. This includes any space while it is occupied by Charlie. If you cannot legally stop them from entering Charlie's space, you are instructed to immediately hold Charlie in a private area away from the outsiders and contact us. Josh rarely dropped off or picked up Charlie himself instead sending Alina to do that. She often came with detailed instructions from Josh or sometimes Steve about how the faculty were to conduct themselves. But she always seemed very apologetic about where Josh was. And I was just happy that I was dealing with her and not one of them. A few weeks later, Charlie told his teacher it was okay to swear around Mormons because they didn't like it and would ask you to stop. If you kept swearing, the Mormons would leave, so you should try to swear around Mormons. Tammy told Charlie he shouldn't use bad language at school. None of this is to say Charlie was a bad kid. He wasn't. Tammy could tell he was very bright. He was very entrepreneurial and extremely curious, just wanted to know about everything. I would say he was precocious. He didn't really fit in. He was very quirky and kind of like a little man. He didn't, he wasn't playful, very serious boy. So I think kids didn't know what to make of him. They didn't dislike him, but he was was always alone. Like at recess, he would just be down on the ground, you know, looking at some bug or I don't even know what. I always saw him out there crawling or, you know, he had projects going on all the time. While alone, Charlie often wrote. He wrote a story about ants because we had an ant infiltration and he was very concerned that I not hurt the ants. So he wrote out directions of how to get rid of ants without hurting them. During class one day, Charlie drew a picture. When Tammy asked what the crayon scribble blob was supposed to be, he explained it was a gun. And he drew it kind of upside down. So when I saw it, first saw it, it looked like people on a mountain or something. And I was always on edge <laughs> about what's he drawing. Um, and then I turned it around and it looked like a gun to me. Alina pestered Tammy in early October after Charlie came home from school with a small nick over his left eye. She said Josh wanted to know how it had happened. 
Tammy told Elena, kids get scrapes all the time. Charlie might have even done it to himself. It wasn't a big deal. But it was a big deal to Josh. He and Alina complained to the school counselor. Josh tended to monopolize the time at school events like parent-teacher conferences. One time, he demanded Tammy stay late so he could meet with her one-on-one after he was done at work. And I said, that would be fine, but our principal will be there. And he said, oh, it's okay. I can get off work. I'll come earlier. Josh didn't talk much about his son's behavior or grades, but instead asked for specifics about what Charlie had been saying in class. In January, the Powells started lobbying Charlie's classmates, inviting them to come to his sixth birthday party. Josh and Steve had almost a campaign going. They wanted kids to go to the party. And every day they brought a different kind of candy, and there would be an invitation as part of the candy. And they would take a vote, like, have everybody raise their hand, are you coming to Charlie's party? Tammy wanted to help Charlie make friends, but she had serious misgivings about any kids spending time at the Powell house. She was prohibited from sharing those concerns with the parents of any of the other students. Steve Powell, though, did a pretty good job creeping people out without Tammy's help. Yeah, actually, my daughter was playing out on the playground while I was doing some planning. And Steve came to the playground with his camera and was taking pictures of the neighborhood kids playing on the playground. And several parents asked him to leave, and he was being defiant. In February of 2011, after Charlie turned six, he made a strange comment during a classroom discussion about siblings. Charlie said that his brother was dead one day. He just came in and said, my brother's dead. But Charlie more and more would start to say odd things, and I would just send him to the counselor because I didn't want any kind of big confession there in front of the class. The school's principal, Arturo Gonzalez, reached out to the Washington State Children's Administration. He told them something horrible might have happened to Braden. The Pierce County Sheriff's Office sent a deputy to the Powell House. Josh and family were not happy to see a cop on their doorstep. Braden was alive and well, they assured him. In May, a classmate said Charlie's mom was dead. He overheard the remark, marched over to that table, and shouted that his mom wasn't dead. She was just away from her parents because they had abused her. Later that day, Tammy asked Charlie if he was okay. I asked if he was feeling better. He said, I feel a little better because I'm really smart and I can figure out a way for liars like this student to go to jail for 14 years. In June... The counselor at Carson Elementary contacted the Children's Administration again. A classmate had tried to befriend Charlie. Charlie told the other boy, I do not want you to sit by me. I'm going to come to your house at night and kill you. The counselor had taken Charlie aside and asked why he'd made the threat. Charlie told her he wanted to kill the boy because he was a Mormon. And I feel like as the year progressed, he was getting closer and closer to saying something that would have incriminated his dad. There were more and more times when I would feel like, oh, we're getting really close, especially with talking about camping and talking about his mom and the crystals and my mom's not dead and that kind of thing was happening more and more. Toward the end of the school year, Josh twice turned up at the school and planted himself on the floor of Charlie's class. Tammy told him that was not acceptable. But Josh wouldn't leave. And then when people would come in to have him leave, he would say, oh, no, I'm fine. He wasn't really combative. He just wouldn't leave. And so then they would have to go get someone else, and eventually the principal would have to come in and escort him out. Josh frequently called the school's counselor and vented about the investigation into Susan's disappearance. He insisted on his innocence. The counselor, who was unnerved, started to screen Josh's calls. So I didn't feel like Josh was interested in me romantically. I guess um, our administrative assistant felt that from him and was very creeped out. She started wearing a fake wedding ring because she didn't want him to be interested in her. But Steve, on the other hand, it was so creepy. He was like a little boy with a crush when he would come around. Like, he would just get all red and be overly polite and accommodating and thankful, and it was really creepy. Josh caused a stir by attempting to join Carson Elementary's Parent-Teacher Association. The PTA president said he was welcome, assuming he could clear a background check. 
Other parents were not thrilled. They talked about circulating a petition to try and block Josh's participation. Josh backed off once word of the dust-up hit the news. Back after this. Let me start by just saying that my wife is one of those people that if we're in the house, say in the family room watching TV or in the kitchen making dinner, the front door is always locked. Home security and family safety is a priority, and I know it is for you and your families as well. But if you're looking to step that up even more in 2019, let me recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is 24-7 home security, no contracts, no catches. The equipment is simple for you to install and safe for you and your family. More than 3 million people already feel this way every day thanks to Simply Safe, and they're not the only ones. The folks at PC Magazine named Simply Safe both editor's choice and reader's choice for 2018. So if this new year is your year to step up the safety and security of your family and your home, get Simply Safe. Just go to simplysafe.com slash cold to get started. That's simplysafe.com slash cold to protect your home and your family today. Simplysafe.com slash cold. A small group gathered at a park in West Valley City, Utah, on Saturday, October 16th of 2010. They came together for an event marking Susan Powell's 29th birthday. The guest of honor, needless to say, did not attend. Many of Susan's close Utah friends, who had been drawn together over the 11 prior months, were there. Neighbor and confidant Kiersey Hallowell was there. So was former daycare provider Debbie Caldwell, and Susan's sister-in-law, Jennifer Graves. We want closure. What's done is done. So if she's alive, we want her back. If she's not, then we want to know the truth. So, too, were West Valley City Police. They kept a low profile, watching as the small crowd of about 25 people tied notes to strings, which were in turn attached to 150 balloons. The balloons were lavender and purple, Susan's favorite color. Each card included a picture of Susan and a message about her disappearance. At the conclusion of the event, the balloons rose into the sky, carrying the messages on the wind. A similar event took place in Puyallup, Washington. Josh didn't attend either event. That day, he left home without his boys at a quarter to nine in the morning. He didn't return until just after 7.30 that night. West Valley were watching him, too. They'd visited the YMCA at the end of the summer, setting up in the chapel to interview all of the staff who had interacted with Josh and Charlie. See, Charlie was five, I believe, at the time. Kids are very creative. They have a very active mind at that age. And they're very observant. Their, their brain's a sponge. Detective Ellis Maxwell was trying to make sense of Charlie's comments about killing bears and hating Mormons. Did any of it have to do with Susan? Yeah, I think you could put a little bit of stock into it. However, I just, I'm not sure how well it would hold up. Not only was it a jumble, but it seemed obvious to the police that at least some of Charlie's responses had been coached. After all, the boys had been living with Steve, Josh, John, Michael, and Alina for months. They would not talk like traditional adults would talk around their kids. I mean, they, they didn't really watch their language. Um, and so I think a combination of, of that, what they were exposed to inside that home at Stephen Powell's, and just them themselves and being kids, and maybe even the media. Police learned Josh had landed a job working for Microsoft. Steve Powell wrote about Josh's new job in his journal in early September. This is Josh's second week at Microsoft. He's quite happy there, but incessantly worries that someone will confront him on his wife's disappearance and he will be let go. He lost the first job that hired him the day before he started after signing contracts and passing their background check. West Valley police hatched a plan. They knew Josh was commuting by train between Puyallup and Bellevue. What if, they wondered, he happened to meet someone on that train? Yeah, the goal was to put a UC on the train and, 
and get close with Josh and try to befriend him. UC is short for undercover. This wasn't going to be just any undercover officer, though. You're obviously going to get more intel, get more information. It's, he's going to be more open and receptive to a female. Ellis hoped the seeds of an incipient romance might just compel Josh to confide some detail that would give him away. Yeah, it was, it was a great plan. Ellis and his team arrived in Washington in early November, ready to put their plan in motion. They never had the chance. Like the day before our operation. Like the next day we were going to move forward with it. We were all up there and we were ready to go and and he lost his job. Here's what happened. Josh provided an interview to the Salt Lake Tribune. He told the paper Susan was extremely unstable and would only return home once the public furor over her disappearance dissipated. He called Chuck Cox a puppet master who was organizing a hate wagon of followers on Facebook. Josh criticized the media for portraying him as a Marvel Comics supervillain. On the one hand, Josh finally talking was a boon for police. You know, for example, Stephen Powell and Josh going to the media and saying how, you know, she was going to be chewed up like hamburger when she returns. Great. Kudos, man. Why don't you guys keep this up? Because these are going to be great to introduce when we get into a trial. Because, <laughs> you know, if, if you genuinely cared about your missing wife and you weren't responsible, you would not be talking in this fashion, right? But it wrecked the undercover girlfriend operation. Josh basically got himself fired from his job because they learned who he was and he's in front of the media and uh, he basically lost his job. So, and, and that happened literally like the day before our operation. West Valley's November trip to Washington wasn't without fruit though. While there on November 16th, West Valley Police Lieutenant Bill Merritt and U.S. Marshal Daryl Spencer paid a visit to the Powell home. Steve invited them into the entryway, where they chatted. Josh was home at the time and also joined in the conversation. Once he did, Steve invited the investigators into the living room. Then they all settled in for a longer talk. Steve and Josh both used the opportunity to berate the police. Steve repeatedly brought up Susan's childhood journals, even reciting passages from memory. In a report, Merritt wrote that each time Steve referenced the journals, he seemed to lose touch with reality and stare into the distance. The investigators asked for the journals. They initially told us, well, we're not going to turn them over to you, but we'll make copies for you. And it's like, no, we need the, the journals, not copies. Josh and Steve then proposed a swap the childhood journals in exchange for the adult journal of Susan's that police had recovered from her workspace. The cops said no deal. Steve Powell had long shown an unusual interest in his daughter-in-law's journals. On January 11th of 2003, he wrote in his own journal about visiting Josh and Susan's apartment when they were still living in Washington State. I've had access to their storage room for a few days and couldn't help but notice two enticing storage boxes. One labeled Susan's photos and one Susan's journals. When it comes to Susan, I stop at nothing. I help myself to everything in those boxes and have scanned hundreds of pages and photos. I don't feel in the least guilty about these things. Steve hadn't shown a similar desire to preserve his own writings. He noted his scan-happy son didn't bother to make digital copies of Susan's journals either. I scanned everything into my computer and now have copies of dozens of early pictures and all her journals up to late 2000. If she loves me, as I think she does, she will not be upset. In fact, she will be thrilled that I am so interested in her. Josh hasn't read them and never will. Susan's journals went back to age eight. During her teenage years, she had penned very frank entries about her family, her crushes, her boyfriends, and her heartbreaks. Her teenage relationships were turbulent and intense, as they often are. Steve found those descriptions titillating. He continued to sneak glances at his daughter-in-law's current journal whenever he could. 
Yet for all of his obsession, Steve couldn't understand why Susan didn't spend more time in those volumes talking about him. On October 6th of 2003, he wrote, Most profound to me is that there is nothing positive said about me. I'm almost a footnote. And with all the other negative comments about me, she doesn't mention a word about my sexual proclivities, which include taking video clips of her from head to foot. It's too bad she is silent about sexual magnetism between us. It would have made interesting reading. I would have even enjoyed it if she had called me Satan incarnate for trying to lead her into sexual sin. But there is nothing. Steve's violation of Susan's privacy did not stop, even after her disappearance. He started reviewing those nine journals again, this time with Josh's full knowledge and cooperation. On October 25th of 2010, Steve wrote, Josh was talking more yesterday about the first days after Susan disappeared. He had told me months ago that the West Valley City Police had lied to him during their interrogations, but he went into more detail. I think he is getting a more secure feeling as we read through Susan's journals and find out who she really is. When Steve and Josh proposed swapping copies of Susan's journals with the police in November of 2010, they obviously hoped to gain by it. That hope didn't last. After the police returned to Utah, Steve called U.S. Marshal Daryl Spencer to tell him he wouldn't be giving up Susan's childhood journals under any circumstances. Josh, it seemed, was coming around to his father's point of view. The pair saw in those journals a defense. They would use Susan's childhood writings to portray her adult self as promiscuous and emotionally unstable. Nancy, from the Puyallup Jam and Mineral Club, said Josh even mentioned the journals to her as he was filling out club membership papers. He looked away from the paper and up at me, and he goes, do you know my story? And I go, yes, I do. He goes, oh, okay, and then just turned around like it was nothing and kept filling out the paper. Josh left many of the fields blank, telling Nancy he didn't want people to know his personal information. He went on to say Susan had been mentally ill and confided he was preparing to release those childhood journals. I just said, you know, childhood journal, it does not define the adult. I go, that's, I wouldn't, do you really want to do that? I wouldn't do that. It's going to come back on you in a negative way. And his response was, well, her parents are saying bad things about me. And, and it's, it was almost like he ha- had to one-up them. And I just said, well, that will come back on them. If they're saying something about you, it will come back on them. But why don't you be a bigger man and not give those journals out to anyone? Those are childhood journals. And he's going, well, you don't know what I went through. You don't know. And I, I go, oh, you're right. I don't know. And so that conversation, that was it for that conversation. And it was eye-opening and shocking. It's like it does, it's like it right now, thinking about it, it's like it wasn't even real. For Steve, Susan's journals were proof she had led a double life. On July 14th of 2011, he broadcast that theory to the world. Steve went on NBC's Today Show and openly discussed his feelings for Susan. The NBC crew even filmed a segment inside Steve's house, where he showed off the actual journals. But Stephen Powell's own daughter and Josh's sister is disturbed by what her estranged father is doing. I think it's not ethical. I think the fact, the very fact that he isn't, re- that he's even reading them, why? If he thought there was something really there, there was something of value there that was like evidence or something, turn him over to the police. That would be the logical course of action. In Jennifer Graves' living room, a picture of Josh and Steve had finished scanning each book and claimed to have 2,000 pages of Susan's writings. They'd obsessively transcribed and annotated them. They intended to put the documents, Susan's entire adolescence, on the SusanPowell.org website, piece by piece. Susan's friends, like Kiersey Hellowell, were outraged. Josh's dad was reading that and posting pages from it and 
Oh, I was furious. I was in, I think I was in New York at the time, um, doing some media, and I got the news that he was posting, like I watched an interview that he did with the Today Show, where he was sitting there turning the pages of the journal and reading little excerpts from it, and I was just, I was ready to drive to Washington and rip his head off, and I'm not a violent person. Like, I can't stand violence, and I was so angry that the person that she despised most in the whole world she could stand him. She loathed him. She told me about all the things he tried to do to her to hit on her and take pictures of her getting dressed and stuff like that. That he was having that precious teenage journal where she'd poured out all her thoughts and feelings and he was looking at it and reading it. But police could not believe their luck. You know, them coming forth with the media and letting the media in, into Stephen Powell's home was great. Ellis Maxwell saw it as a major miscalculation on Steve's part. I mean, there were some things that Steve did that was wonderful and, and Josh, and I was like, right on, because that's what I needed to get inside Steve's house. Ellis wasn't the only one who realized the Today Show appearance was a gift in disguise. Kiersey saw it too. I was sitting in the hotel room watching it and I just, John and I were just, my husband and I were sitting there in shock with our mouths dropped open and then I said, wow, he just gave the police a search warrant. Because he said it because was Because he evidence. said, this is important evidence that I have in Susan's case. I'm like, oh, well, there's the reason for a search warrant. So when he let the media in the house and let him film his residence and film these journals in his residence, that was money. That was money, because that was our probable cause to, to get inside the house, and that's what we needed. And so there were some things that they did. They were trying to divert attention, and that's another one, was letting the media in on these journals. Some of it was useful to us. Some of it I didn't waste time on. And uh, what was useful, we uh, capitalized on. on the next episode of Cold. I knew what kind of words I needed out of Steve. I needed to give the police a reason to give a judge that they needed to get those journals back. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold. Toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up thecoldpodcast.com. Also, If Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, in other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to the team. Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Kira Faramond, Becky Bruce, Josh Tilton, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl Worsley. The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bonmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening.